This is an ABC podcast. Are you a little too attached to your smartphone? Not that you should feel weird if you're tuning in from a device. But seriously, are you? Hi, I'm Justine Toe, sitting in for Meredith Lake for Soul Search on RN and your ABC Listen app. Thanks to Brooke Prentice for passing on guest hosting duties to me. I'll be with you for a few weeks before Meredith returns. Well, at least 8 in 10 Australians own a smartphone. And virtually all of us experience nomophobia, the fear of being without our phones. That's according to a 2021 study by Monash University. But even if we feel umbilically attached to our devices, can they satisfy our human need for connection, to be known? Even if we long for community, the experts say we're in a loneliness crisis. So maybe we need the help of those who live in rich forms of community to point the way forward. Every human, no matter what their background, no matter what their skill set, no matter what their experiences, no matter what their community looks like, every human has the capacity and the opportunity to create beautiful pockets of community exactly where they are. This this kind of longing for connection and community and intimacy that exists in our society, actually we can create it. That's Jaden Batty. Jaden, his wife Michaela, and co-worker Joel live with 28 men otherwise at risk of homelessness. We'll hear more about Jaden's community a little later in the program. But first, let's get a grip on the way we live with our devices, because they explain a lot about why we feel so disconnected. I spoke with Andy Crouch, a writer and thinker who's mused a lot about the perils and possibilities of technology. His book is The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Our conversation began with a confession from me. So Andy, I'm sure I'm not that different from other people, but the last thing I touch before I go to sleep and the first thing I touch when I wake up is my phone. Is that Um, right? (laughs) But I think I read somewhere that you try and go outside first thing in the morning or, or do anything else really before touching your phone. Was there a particular moment or event that made you start doing that? Oh my. Well, I do indeed begin every day without the glowing rectangle. And I begin every day outside, out of doors, uh, and except for very unusual situations. I've been in 50 stories up in a you know high-rose hotel. I still find a way to get outside. And the reason I began doing this was, I think, the dawning awareness that so many of us have experienced that I was in particular, beginning my day, I also want to end my day differently, but I was beginning it with this wave of adrenaline that came from all those notifications that had piled up overnight. (laughs) Uh, I mean, good opportunities, also opportunities for outrage, distress, worry, all were being fed to me by this thing as I was making my morning tea. And I thought there has got to be a better way to start the day. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go out of doors. And it has turned out to be, you know, this incredibly simple discipline. I just leave my phone plugged in. I walk outside, sometimes for a very short amount of time. It can be just a few seconds even. Uh, But I walk out of doors and take a breath and 
just feel what it is to be a creature <laughs> in the midst of creation rather than a little god of a glowing screen. And it has just ridiculously transformed my relationship with my phone and a lot of other technology as well, I would say. Why do you think that is? That just that brief glimpse outside helps to reset you, I suppose. Like, what's going on there? I think there are several things. One is it's a, a much richer sensory experience than we get from our screens. You know, the screen is a visual medium. Of course, it can have little dings and sounds as well. But really, it's primarily this little glowing area. Uh, that captivates our attention. But when you step out of doors, first of all, even what you're attending to with your eyesight, if you're sighted, is far richer and more complex and bigger than that little handheld device or even a laptop or whatever. So you're, the actual vi visual experience is much richer. And then, of course, you're hearing sounds, you are smelling smells, you know, the different seasons of the year where I live, at least in Philadelphia and the U.S., have very different aromas associated with them. You know, you step out in the middle of winter, it's very different from the middle of summer. And then, of course, there's the, the bodily sensation of temperature change, many, much of the year, right? And all of that is like this invitation to wake up. Whereas when you try to compress your experience into this little glowing rectangle, you're really being asked to engage with the world in a very, with a very limited repertoire of our senses and, and then a very limited repertoire of how we would respond. So I think going out of doors is this reminder that we really were, I, I think, made to live in this multi-sensory, multi-dimensional world. And we're not made to shrink down our experience to something that's basically convenient for technology. Technology can't reproduce this extraordinary world we live in, um, but it can give us a little like micro world, but, but we're not made for that micro world. We're made for the cosmos, the big thing. Yeah, when you talk about that micro world, I know just even spending just a little bit of time on it, but then not being able to put it down as well, produces this experience of feeling too full and yet too empty at once, which is wow. a strange thing, isn't it? Wow. What's going on there? Wow, completely. And actually, I think one of the things I feel when I go out of doors is it's actually the reverse. I feel actually very small. <laughs> I mean, we are so small in, in the midst of this vast universe that we're part of. And yet, uh, I don't know if it's a universal human experience, but a very common human experience is in, in that humbling a sense of stepping out into the fullness of the world, somehow we find ourselves in the right way. And as a person of faith and Christian faith, I, I actually think like this is how I'm meant to relate to the creator of creation. I'm actually quite small compared to the creator, but I'm invited to kind of see myself in the right light, not too small, not too big. But these worlds that we make for ourselves with our technology and especially our digital technology invite us to kind of exaggerate our importance. I mean, you know, one of the other things about going out of doors is there's a lot going on out there that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> like, the birds don't really care whether I'm outdoors or not. I mean, maybe the squirrels keep a slightly greater distance from my front door than they would otherwise. But basically, so much of creation is going on without uh, needing me or, or addressing me. But of course, when I open up my phone, it's, it's obviously all designed with exquisite sensitivity to my needs, my preferences, what I allegedly need to know, things I need to act on. 
And so actually, I think that's what generates that fullness that you're describing, like, oh, my goodness, like this world is very full of me, <laughs> but but <laughs> it's also shrunk to the size of me. And uh, and I'm like a little god in the world of that phone. What I say goes, what I, what I want is what it wants. But that's not necessarily a healthy way to live as persons. And um, so maybe that's part of why resetting every morning for me has been it has also changed how I enter the small world of the phone. I enter it recognizing that it's small and less attached to it than I used to be um, and more able to use it just as an instrument rather than let it kind of take over my imagination and, and my uh, preoccupations. I think so much of what you say will resonate with so many people. Uh, <laughs> your new book is called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And it starts in such a surprising way because you reflect on how babies stare at faces looking to make a connection. But of course, you know, in our world, almost everyone spends far too much time staring at screens, mm. right? But and, and with cameras that recognise us. <laughs> but this is not the kind of recognition that <laughs> I believe we are initially seeking, right, as infants. So... Join yes. some dots for us. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, um, what our devices offer us these days, especially, is an incredibly personalized world. But I think what we actually were looking for the moment we were born was a personal world. And I think they're different. So a, a personal world is one in which there are other persons who will, whose face I can find and who will find my face. Um, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who says every one of us is looking for someone who is looking for us. This is the basic human experience. We're looking for someone who's looking for us. And that's a personal experience. And it's always relational. I think what it is to be a person is to be made for relationship and to be built with this kind of quest for relationship. But a personalized world is one that that does give me a simulation. You know, my, my device is paying attention to me. It's paying closer attention to me than most people in my life do because it's only listening for my voice and it's always waiting for my touch and all that. Um, but, but of course, my device is not actually another person and it's not really looking for me in the way that another person could be. So, so we've ended up with this very, very high fidelity simulation of being known. Um, I mean, high fidelity in one way, but in another way, completely inadequate to our real need, which is to know and be known by other people. And every one of us began our lives looking for a face. But at some point we learned that the quest for a face can lead to disappointment, can lead to shame, can lead to a sense of disconnection as well as connection. And once we've learned that, we're sort of on the, on the hunt for an alternative that's safer. And the other thing I would say about the digital world is that it offers us much safer ways of feeling connected. They're much thinner. They're, they're less adequate in the long run for our health. But they are much less risky, you might say, than those faces that we were once looking for with such innocence and expectation. We learned not to be so innocent. And that is actually part of, and we kind of approach our devices with more trust than we do other people now. Because <laughs> the device is less likely, at least initially, to reject me, to judge me, to disappear from my life the way people can. So it's partly out of the wounds of being human, I think that the world of the digital becomes really appealing. 
But it has its own costs as well, because the people, the, the experts say we're living amidst a loneliness crisis as well. And and that has perhaps, well, I don't know the, the stats on this, but it seems to have sharply increased alongside the use of handheld devices like smartphones. So there is a connection. It does seem to have sharply increased. There's a kind of hinge in so many graphs. Uh, I'm borrowing that word from the American psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who's written about this quite a lot. There's this hinge where the, sh- the slope changes, and, and it, it crosses so many different indices of mental health, and it corresponds with the widespread availability of smartphones in around 2012-2013. And I think it's because um, it, was, it was with the kind of perfecting of the smartphone, <laughs> if we can call it that, that, that the simulation became so good as to be a kind of temporarily viable alternative to the relationships that are often so complex, especially for adolescents, uh, by the way, in whom we're seeing the most dramatic effects. Because, of course, they're the most, in a way, most exposed to this. They, they didn't have decades of formation in another way. They just came of age with this as a possibility. But the shadow side of that is that uh, if I always turn to the screen instead of to a face, it will be any given interaction with the screen is much more predictable, controllable, safe in a certain way. But of course, it never develops the sense that I'm actually known. And that actually reinforces the cycle of loneliness and shame. Like, well, if I'm not actually known, maybe I can never trust anyone to know me. Maybe if anyone ever got to know me, um, uh, you know, they would reject me. And that, of course, drives us back to the screen. <laughs> and, and that's a vicious cycle that I think is generating the unique, uh, you know, the big three right now are loneliness, anxiety, and depression. And here in the U.S. in particular, these are very markedly growing among adolescents including, interestingly, among adolescent boys. Some of these issues have been more prominent for girls as they go through the transition of the teenage years. And boys, we once thought were more insulated from these things, but now they're showing all the same pathologies, you might say, or at least struggles that we once associated with girls, including suicidality and things like that, that were once quite different for the genders, now are converging as boys and girls uh, find themselves kind of cut off from the kinds of relationships we were made for. Hmm. I'm kind of hoping that by the time my six and eight-year-old are teens that will have woken up and banned devices, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Um, I find your book so deeply human and it's always keeping the human in view and the human costs in this age that we've built for ourselves, in this age of technology that we've built. But I've never seen the human described as you describe them here, right? You call them a heart-soul-mind-strength complex. Can you expand on that? What is that? (laughs) Yes, what is it to be a human being? I mean, this has been attempted many times, but I was captivated by this language that comes from the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish kind of wisdom tradition, you could say, and the most important text in that tradition, which is called the Shema Yisrael, which is just the first two Hebrew words of a a passage of Deuteronomy that is um, said aloud by every observant Jewish person to this day when they get up in the morning. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And at least that's the way that um, Jesus of Nazareth quoted it. And I got to thinking about this quaternity or <laughs> these four <laughs> these four things, 
heart, soul, mind, strength. And I'm struck that they capture the complexity, which is why I call this a heart, soul, mind, strength complex. Uh, we are this irreducible combination of four different things that we can think of as, as distinct, and yet they can never be separated in what it is to be human. So we have heart, which is emotion. We have soul, which is probably the hardest to pin down, but depth of self, you could say, like a sense that I have some in, innate individuality that's more than the sum of my parts, let's say. And then mind, which is our rational capability, and then strength, which kind of um, invites us to remember that we are bodies as well as hearts or minds or souls. But a, a human being is not one of those without the other. We're all of those together. And, and then the text says, love with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And that allness, that invitation to become more than we are in some ways, or to at least live the, the fullness of who we are. I just started to think, you know, this is a very good foil or contrast for the way I live many days, which is I can easily live, easily live and work in my job a whole day without using my strength at all. I move my fingers millimeters on a keyboard and occasionally reach over to a mouse. My body is basically a support system for, it feels like my brain. We have jobs, on the other hand, that, that actually turn people into only physical strength and don't ask them to do anything with their minds. That doesn't seem good either. And yet there's so many jobs like that in the modern world, many more than in the pre-modern world where people had more integrated lives. So I started to think about this heart, soul, mind, strength complex, I would say designed for love, like built for connection. And how well is the modern world doing <laughs> at helping us be that? And I would say we're not doing very well. I'm Justine Toe, and this is Soul Search on ABC RN. I'm talking to Andy Crouch about the place of technology in our lives. He's just painted this beautiful picture of the human as a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love, rather than, say, tapping away at a keyboard. But here's the thing. Don't we want technology to overcome our limits? We love technology precisely because it puts us in what Andy calls the superpower zone. The superpower zone is, th is this common experience in the technological world of, of power without effort. Like I just push a button and things happen and I, I feel very effective um, when I do that. It could be the accelerator pedal in my car. It could be sitting in an airplane as I'm whisked through the skies. Uh, I'm doing nothing, you know, and yet all these forces are being marshaled to get me what I want. Well, that's exhilarating. And, and I actually think sometimes it's useful and appropriate. But what it never does, whatever benefits it gives me, it never gives me the benefit of developing any of my capabilities. Because if I can have it just by pushing a button, if I can um, get in my car and accelerate to a, a very high rate of speed, I never have to move my body with effort such that I actually become stronger and able to move faster on my own. In fact, quite the opposite. The longer I spend in my automobile on an airplane, the less my body actually diminishes right in its strength. For every, every hour I've spent in my car, I've lost some quantum of ability to move um, with kind of purpose and, and uh, force through the world. So the superpower zone is this, I think, distinctive trade-off of the modern world where we did manage to harness power, first just raw power, energy, and then also kind of information power, 
where we no longer have to become some someone different. And, you know, any given day, that can feel like a very happy trade. Like, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to swim to Australia when I come to visit in a month or so. <laughs> I'm glad I get to fly. But of course, if I were somehow, you know, people did once sail from one continent to another, and they were different people at the end of that journey. Now, it was perilous. It was difficult. But also, if we met one of those people, they would in embodied ways, know things about the world that we moderns rarely ever learn and know things about themselves and know things about their own limits, but also their own amazing capabilities that if you just stay cocooned in the superpower zone, you'll never discover. And that's the trade that we make over and over in the modern world. And I'm kind of inviting us in this book to, to um, re-examine that bargain and not give up on all the advantages of technology, but ask, like, what do we really want? And I, I think... On our best days and our best times, we want to become something more. And we sense we're made for more, but we'll never get that more if we're in the superpower zone the whole time. Yeah, you have a very uh, interesting distinction that you draw between the devices that don't ask much of us mm. and instruments that actually ask a lot of us, but also give return something to us in the process as well. Can you spell that out yes, or flesh that out for us? Exactly. And I actually think this is one of the more exciting ideas because it means that we do not at all have to just rewind and give up on technology, but we could ask it to do something different. So if you think of devices as the forms of technology that basically just operate on their own on our behalf. And they do things for us. And often we're very happy they do things for us. Like I have an automatic dishwasher in my kitchen and I'm so happy I don't have to do the dishes. So it's a dishwashing device. It, it replaces me, basically. So devices replace and often displace human beings from doing things in the world. And sometimes uh, things we'd rather not do. So that's okay. But uh, but they also, of course, leave us with nothing to do. <laughs> so they leave us in the superpower zone of no development, no extension of ourselves. But there's other kinds of technology that actually are can be very high tech, but they involve a human being often with these four qualities of heart, soul, mind, and strength in very deep ways in the world. And so I think about scientific instruments. I happen to be married to an experimental physicist who, um, my wife, Catherine, who uses very advanced technology to probe kind of the properties of tiny, cold things. That's at least what her PhD was on, very small, very cold um, materials. And, you know, you would never walk into her lab and think that it's anything but high technology. It's all high technology, but it's used by people. It doesn't operate on its own. It doesn't replace people. It doesn't put, it doesn't put physicists out of a job. It, it gives them actually, in some ways, harder jobs, more, more engaging jobs to actually extend our understanding of the world. And then um, I think maybe the best example is musical instruments. Um, I play the piano and the grand piano, the modern grand piano, is has a lot of technology in it, actually, because we had to develop the steel in the harp and so forth that, um, that allow us to create these tremendous uh, tensions in the strings that create this resonant sound. But it's not a player piano. It doesn't play all by itself. It's not a, a you know digital reproduction. It actually invites me to sit down and play. And I think we could ask a lot more of what are currently devices to be instruments instead. We could ask them not to replace us and displace us, but actually to, 
to properly place us <laughs> with extended capabilities to actually explore and contribute to the world. So that shift from devices to instruments is maybe the most important development we could look for in the next hundred years of technology. It's a very hopeful um, vision that you've sketched out there in that possible transition from devices to instruments. But I feel like we also need to encounter something of um, maybe a violence or a destruction that you do talk about in your book with technology. Because hmm. you, you quote Jesus, who famously says hmm. that a person cannot serve both God and money, that hmm. these are rival hmm. gods. Right. And you draw on Jesus's words to argue that money or mammon, in his words, yeah. is the driving spirit behind modern technology. Like, I feel like you need to, to let us know, what, what does that mean? Do you mean the reigning spirit of the age, or do you mean something more sinister? Well, I certainly mean nothing less than the reigning spirit of the age. I got this idea, or started thinking about this idea, because of a, another writer on technology, a, a theologian named Craig Gay, and he poses a question in one of his books. He says, why is it that so little technology really seems, first of all, designed to serve what he calls ordinary embodied human existence? <laughs> How is it that so much of this stuff doesn't actually really seem to help me like go out of doors and be a creature in the world? And his answer, and I think it's deeply right, is that technology and the development and what we often think of as, as progress in technology is not indexed off of what would be best for persons. It's indexed off of what is best for profit, <laughs> for multiplying financial returns to the owners of the systems that uh, develop the technology. And so the spirit of our age is one in which more and more of human life is brought within the logic of the market, within the logic of financial exchange and, and measurement of value in terms of money. I am a believer in the benefits of markets, but I think that, that this has run beyond its sort of proper place and now is driving, and I think we often feel this, it's, you know, I don't know uh, if this is a big deal where you are, but uh, Meta, the corporation that used to be called Facebook, which owns this once beautiful app called Instagram, they keep messing with it. And they, they just introduce a whole bunch of changes to Instagram that basically make it worse and worse for ordinary creators and people who just want to share photos with their friends and make it better and better, essentially for the selling of products. And the, no user of Instagram was saying, oh, I wish this would become a more effective marketing platform for kind of consumer influencers. <laughs> the, the, that change has been made entirely because of the commercial logic that is driving this platform, which millions and millions of people are kind of locked in on. Their friends are there, their, their source of meaning is there, but they're being dragged along by this profit motive that does not ask, what would be the best way for human beings to share uh, images on social media. That's not the question. It's what's the best thing for the bottom line of Meta Incorporated. And this applies even more so to this dream that caused Mark Zuckerberg to rename the company Meta from Facebook, which is that he dreams of creating what, you know, is called a metaverse, a virtual reality environment that is wholly owned by this corporation in which your very representation, like you, Justine, sitting in the world right now are not owned by any corporation. Now you may work for an organization, but they don't own you. But your avatar, your VR representation in the meta world will be literally licensed from the meta corporation. Your, the very 
like expression of yourself will be just a, a download <laughs> from this profit-making enterprise. And that's the ultimate, to me, the ultimate success of mammon would be to say, leave that messy, complicated, natural world behind. Join us in this pristine, beautiful, infinitely possible, controlled virtual world. But who controls it? The engine of profit. And what incentives drive it? Entirely profit. And this is where technology wants to go. Technology wants to go where mammon wants to go. And only if we have a significant resistance movement that says, actually, we do not want to go there. We don't want to live in a world that's that's uh, not even really owned by Mark Zuckerberg, but owned by the profit principle. If we don't have a resistance movement that says, let's actually think about how to apply all these things we've learned about the cosmos through science, let's apply them to living in this world better as human beings. If we don't do that, Mammon is going to keep running the show. Mm. It's quite disturbing, of course, that a lot of the people in Silicon Valley who are working on making our devices so compelling, I hear that they don't want their own kids oh. near it as oh. well, which is certainly <laughs> should be ringing some alarm bells. Completely. Um, Completely. The, the, I, I have a friend who sends his kids to the, the most exclusive school in, in Silicon Valley. It's a Montessori school, which, uh, you know, founded on these uh, beautiful educational principles for young children, which has no technology. It's the hardest school to get your kids into in all of the Bay Area because it's tech free. And who's sending their kids there? The executives at Google, Facebook, Apple. You, you did start talking about the need for resistance. And I remember in an earlier work of yours, The TechWise Family, which seems like a bit of a companion piece to this yeah. book, uh, you do suggest that there is something to be said for becoming almost, almost Amish. <laughs> okay, which is it's probably what the, the Silicon Valley kids are doing, right? Because they're going to Montessori schools. All of us, of course, don't have those kinds of pay packets of Silicon Valley. <laughs> so right. so how do we do... The, the, the lo-fi version of almost, almost Amish. <laughs> yeah, well, the Amish principle is simply not to uncritically adopt technology on its own terms. I live very near the largest Amish community in the United States. And, um, you know, they have phones, but not in their houses. The phones are out in sheds uh, or in barns. So they use phones, but they just decided, but we don't want this in our house. They use engines, but for whatever reason, not mobile engines. They will use fixed engines to power their grain elevators, for example, but they won't drive cars. And whatever you think of any of those individual choices, there's two things that are notable. One is there's a discernment process involved that says, what do we really think is good? What's the proper use of this? So for example, I do have a phone in my house. <laughs> I have several smartphones, right? But we've decided in our home, no phones in bedrooms. Uh, so we just never take the phone into the bedroom. And we certainly don't take it in overnight. The adults don't. When we had kids at home, the children didn't either. Because we felt like that's not the proper place for this kind of always on digital world. So I love the idea that we can make choices, intentional choices, about what's the right place and role, uh, rather than just saying, well, I've got this thing now. I guess it comes with me everywhere. The other notable thing about the Amish, of course, is they make these decisions together. They make them with one another. And they, of course, they're a very tightly knit religious community, and most of us aren't part of such a community anymore. But I think ultimately we will have to make some choices together, whether it's parents in a neighborhood saying, you know what, let's have a just a practice that when kids come over to play, 
if they bring their phones, all the phones just get put in a basket at the door when they arrive so that the kids can actually play rather than spending their time on their screens. Uh, a lot of these choices, it's so much easier to make them if there's just even a few other people who are making them with you. And the Amish model that. So, yeah, and, and on that point further, you, you have also a vision of small communities of trust, mm. like living together, people committed to each other, not necessarily just nuclear families, but households yeah. of, of people who are committed to each other's good. Um, I, I think there's so much power in that, and I really don't want to be negative, but yeah. does it seem like a really modest resistance in the face of this um. overwhelming mammon that you're talking about? <laughs> Yes, right. Here's this massive global force, and let's just have a few friends live together uh, in resistance. Will it ever work? Well, the reality is most of us cannot change these massive global systems, but we can change uh, the circumstances of our immediate life to some extent. My wife and I actually just moved house for a year. We left the single-family detached home that we live in, have lived in for 20 years, and we moved into the first floor, into a flat owned by friends of ours who live on a second floor in the city of Boston. We're going to live with them for a year. Now, it's a, it has its own entrance. We have our own key. <laughs> but I tell you, it is so amazing to be in a building un underneath, and I can hear every footstep, actually, from <laughs> Simon, and, Simon and Manuela upstairs and their kids, but to be in proximity to people who know us, who we do trust, who check on us, who ask how we're doing, who see us at occasions when we're not prepared to host people, you know, just coming in and out of the house or whatever. I, I think the Western world, and by that I really mean the whole world that's in thrall to technology and mammon, where whatever hemisphere you're in, is such a lonely place. And I actually think there are some choices we've made, and my wife and I happen to have just made this choice, to, to move into more proximity in ways that are sometimes quite threatening and scary, but also much more relationally rich than the default settings of our world. But I will also say, I frame this book partly through looking at the Roman Empire, which was the kind of dominant world reality of its time. And in the first century, there were a group of households connected to what became known as the Christian movement that lived so differently from the empire around them in ways that for a while got them horribly persecuted, often killed, certainly marginalized. But they had stumbled upon, I think we could say, even if we don't share their faith, we could say they'd stumbled on some really essential ideas for what a good human life is in community. And they lived it out initially only in households because they didn't have church buildings, they didn't have institutions, they didn't have access to any of that, but they could live differently in their homes, around their tables. And over a few hundred years, that community that started in those households changed the direction of the Roman Empire in unbelievably dramatic and decisive ways. Will that happen in the Empire of Mammon? I have no idea. And I won't find out because it'll be a multi-hundred year project if it happens. But why not begin now? Because it's good to begin now. That's Andy Crouch, author of The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. You're listening to Soul Search with me, Justine Toe, on ABC RN and the ABC Listen app. We're talking about human connection in a world of devices. What a fascinating idea Andy leaves us with, that life in community can resist an empire. We're going to continue with that theme, community, as we speak with Jaden Batty. 
Jaden, his wife Michaela, and co-worker Joel have 28 housemates, men who exist on the fringes of the mainstream because of mental illness, homelessness or scarce work. But even if it's too easy for people to look away from men like these, Jaden and Michaela decided to move in with them. Here, he gives us an insight into the faith motivations for why he and Michaela, a young married couple in their 20s, made such a drastic life decision. Um, we moved in, or kind of coming to that decision, a few months into the 2020 lockdown, and it was a time when you know we missed everyone. We're, we're big um, social people. We love our friends, but we we missed them. We missed our colleagues. We we missed you know our, our local barista down the street. We missed um, our family. There's so many people that we missed. But as we kind of dragged deeper and deeper into lockdown, we realised that there was a demographic of people that we didn't miss, and not because we didn't want to, but because we we didn't know any of them, and that was people who were experiencing homelessness. Um, that was until we had a couple of uh, kind of, I'm going to call them kind of lead up experiences into making the decision to move in, which was so, uh, yeah, one night just before curfew hit, we were walking home from the supermarket when we saw a, a man in or out the front of a house not too far from our own who had been stabbed with an, a needle that he said had been used by someone who had HIV and he was really stressed and he was homeless and he'd just been kind of couch surfing at this sort of rooming house that was that was nearby and then another morning I was starting work from our garage which is where I worked during lockdown and I heard this this moaning coming from the street and ran out to find that there was a young man in maybe his late 20s or early 30s who was yeah hitting his head against the concrete on, on the curb um, and it kind of came to that he, he had been using heroin and he also didn't have anywhere safe to live and it really, yeah, had this thought pressing on our mind that there are so many people in our city, in our neighborhood who are experiencing homelessness or experiencing mental illness or struggling with addiction and, and other challenges. And um, who knows them? As in, you know, there, there are support services that exist, you know, government provided or healthcare providers can provide, but but who knows these people? Um, because they're somebody's neighbors, you know, they're somebody's friends, hopefully, or they're somebody's children. And I guess that was just kind of really on our hearts that we, yeah, we wanted to make some kind of intentional change in our lives that we wanted to be the people who knew these people because it's important that everyone is seen and known and loved. Um, but Jayden, yes, I guess that was kind of plodding around in our hearts for a little while. But but I mean, I what you say is absolutely beautiful, and and um, other people would come across similar situations in their neighbourhoods, and and maybe I don't know, like open up their wallets and give some money, let's say, to to people in that situation. But not everyone thinks, oh, how about we move in with each other? <laughs> so what, what's going on there? Why that extra step? Yeah, I think like this charity and charity is good, and I think Australians you know, want to be incredibly generous when disasters strike, like, you know, floods or bushfires. You know, we we dig deep and we really want to go that extra step and, and be useful and, and helpful and supportive. But I think there's also another level just on like the mundane day-to-day where it's really just easy to forget that there are people in need. That sounds super, super obvious, but yeah, there are people in need around us all the time. And actually every person needs to have friends that they can look to and that they can ride the highs and lows of life with. And as much as you can kind of give someone money or provide them with services, there's something that every human needs I'm, I'm convinced of that it just exists in friendship where there's no other kind of ulterior motive. You know, I, I'm not, not here just to provide something for you. I'm actually here because I just because I care for you and because you matter to me. So I think 
when you live with someone, you know, when you, you know, eat meals across the table with someone, when you scrub floors together, when you see each other bleary eyed in the morning after you've woken up or you're saying goodnight before you go to sleep in the same building, there's just this kind of level of, um, of intimacy where, yeah, you can go from kind of knowing someone exists to, to really knowing them and where the consistency of that living situation um, just assures someone not just in words but in like the daily rhythms of life that they will continue to be seen and that if they, yeah, if they have a, a something going on, like they're not, they're not going to be forgotten um, no matter what happens, no matter what they do, someone will be there and they'll care. Mm. And your official title is live-in house manager. That's yourself, yeah. Makayla, your wife, and also Joel who lives as yeah. well. And which, you know, a kind of title like that feels like it's there's a particular kind of relationship that gets set up between the other residents and yourself. But what you're talking about is really just sharing house, right? Like how do you how do you negotiate any of those, I guess, power imbalances that might be set up um, mm-hmm. initially? Yeah, and, and what does the, the live-in house manager role, if I can put it that way, what does it mm-hmm. involve? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there is still some kind of power imbalance. There's some level of authority that you hold as a house manager, but I think the key to that is in the the title of the organisation we work with, which is called Servants Community Housing. And so when we view the role of a, of a house manager or, or housekeeper, we sometimes call it as well, is that we're, we're actually in a, in a position to serve. And you know, so many people talk about servant-hearted leadership. Uh, I think for us, the heart is that we we know that we can create a really safe and secure environment for people to thrive within. And so when we um, do certain things, when we when we lay out some, a certain kind of culture in, in our houses, that those power imbalances are kind of shifted around and in some kind of weird way where, yeah, we're, we're able to provide something of ourselves, whether that's our time or, or whatever that might be to, at a certain point in time. And um, yeah, and, and just care for someone. So on the day-to-day, what we do is, you know, we, we do really mundane things like like cleaning and putting out breakfast cereals and helping distribute mail. Or sometimes things happen and it's more like, you know, bailing out water from a flooded room at four o'clock in the morning, which was uh, a few months ago. Oh gosh, um, right. Or you get a lockdown and it's uh, existing in community and just checking in and making sure that everyone's tracking okay. Or um, when an emergency strikes, you know, driving someone to the hospital or talking to them about their drug use and and helping them kind of understand what their options might be for some healthier pathways. It can really be pretty varied, but I guess it's just kind of all the normal day-to-day stuff you might do if you were living in a family, but amplified. Okay. So things happen unexpectedly, right? And um, mm-hmm. you guys just have to respond then and there. And yeah, and I suppose sometimes the residents would also be, I mean, they're, they're like roommates as well, right? And so mm-hmm. they there's going to be conflict, there's going to be things they're navigating as well. Um what is it like to kind of live in a house that has so many potentially challenging moments? I mean, it, I think yeah. we, I think we can get a sense of the reward of that, but mm-hmm. it is challenging as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the first thing to probably mention is that for a rooming house with twenty eight people living in it, the amount of incidents we have is is incredibly low, and our turnover of staff is incredibly low as well. And our residents live a really um, kind of healthy and flourishing life. And I think that the reason for that is because the uniqueness of our model, having people living alongside 
um, other people. And we also have a, a big focus on hospitality in our houses as well, creates the kind of environment where um, where people want to be. And when someone wants to be at home, they, they take pride in, in their home and in the culture that they create and in those friendships and relationships. And so the actual potential tensions is probably a lot lower than what they, they could be or what they, they are in, in many other rooming houses. But inevitably, yeah, things do go wrong. And I think that that can be look like so many different things. Uh, I think of one gentleman who lives with us who's in his early 30s and a few months into lockdown, he had an, an episode and, and moved from his uh, depressive state of bipolar into his manic state and, and that hadn't switched for over eight years for him before. So it, it's not a frequent occurrence. And in the space of about half an hour, he got so anxious that he punched out his window and just had blood running down his arm, but then locked himself in his room because he was so scared that someone might take him to a psych ward mm. um, where he really didn't want to go. So even when we called an ambulance, he, he just he just wouldn't go, wouldn't open the door. And here's where I think relationship is is so important because as, as someone who lives with with this this person, I was able to kind of knock on the door and say, hey, mate, it's Jaden here and I'm not driving you anywhere, but I do probably just want to check that you're okay. And we just got chatting. We chatted for a few minutes. He eventually opened the door and he came out and um, we did actually drive him to hospital in the end. But I think when you have a position of trust and relationship with somebody, then yeah, you're, you're able to navigate the inevitable highs and lows much easier. Mm. And the the great thing about our house is that it's not only us who carry that relationship with our residents, it's our residents who carry it with each other. And so with this particular resident, you know, he was, he's fairly young. There's a, an older man who has the door, room next door to him at our house who also has bipolar. And over the next 18 months, just saw the two of them kind of buddy up and the older guy would take the younger guy to the chemist to help get his meds and would go for walks with him in the mornings and would cook with him and they'd sit together and eat together at dinner. And there was this kind of beautiful, natural, really organic kind of mentorship that formed out of two people who have really similar life experiences in some ways, but who are at quite different ages. I just think that's a beautiful model for how we can support each other, find people who are like us, but it's relationship and trust that kind of fosters that opportunity. If, you know, someone just walked in to this guy and said, hey, I've got all the answers for how you could do your life better, he's not going to be very receptive. Servants Community Housing, which is the organisation that your house is a part of, Mm. it's an initiative of Hawthorne Baptist Church. Tell me about the faith factor and in the motivation for doing this work in the Mm. first place and how that plays out in the life of the house. I mean, you've already mentioned, I guess, the the Mm. servant-hearted leadership. That seems Mm. like a place to start. Mm. Um, When Servants was first formed, it was really organic. It was just a group of residents from a local church who saw that a rooming house that was run by the state government was going to be shut down. And they approached the state government and said, hey, you can't shut it down. These 38 people in this particular house um, might become homeless. And the government said, well, if if you run it, then we won't shut it down. And so the church kind of said, all right, um, I guess I guess we'll do that then. <laughs> and it just really formed as this kind of beautiful organic community. I guess the heart from a faith perspective is that Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And there's this story of, of in the Gospels where Jesus asked, okay, well, and who is my neighbor? And the point of the story or the parable that Jesus then goes on to explain is that your neighbor can be anyone, even potentially the person that you might feel most afraid of or that society conditions you to be most wary of. In our society, there's so many people that we're told to be cautious of and understandably sometimes for good reason. 
you know, we walk past someone on the street and you don't know what their story is or if they're in a sound state of mind or, or if it could be quite a dangerous scenario. But the call to love people who are marginalized doesn't stop just where it's really safe. I think Jesus encourages and invites people to yeah, consider what it might look like to love people who no one else will allow themselves to love um, or to know people who no one else will bother to take the time to know no matter how good their intentions might be. Your faith helps you realize that actually if, if God's image is bestowed in you, you yourself are a gift. And so when you bring yourself in relationship with someone and, and offer yourself to them, yeah, you, you are, I guess, kind of an embodiment of God's generosity to humankind in the way that you love other people. So I guess for, for servants, many of our house managers and some of our staff are, are people of faith. And that I know for, for those of us that are, that calling to love your neighbor and the idea that, yeah, when I bring myself, my best offering to God is, is the gift of myself and I offer that to other people freely. And then when we all do that, there's kind of a pretty stunning things that can happen in community. I think love is no longer kind of self-conscious, but is others focused and isn't insecure, but rather is fully aware of how powerful your presence can be in someone else's life. Not overstating yourself, still humble, but beautiful and powerful at the same time. So Jaden, if we work in the city on our way with our busy lives, it's easy to pass people on the street and especially if they're homeless and not really, like they kind of exist at the peripheral edge of your vision, but you don't really mm. pay attention to them. But what I guess you're asking of people or, or you asked of yourself is why not? Why not pay attention to everyone around you? So what do you understand about paying attention to people? What's going on there? Yeah. And I think it's not just about people who are homeless or, or marginalized in that way either. Like at the end of the day, all of us have messy relationships around us, right? And that might be a family member, a spouse. It could be a neighbor, someone in your you know footy club, there are messy relationships all around us. It's really easy to remove ourselves from them and to just pretend they don't exist or to treat them with contempt. But I guess what I'm saying is possible and, and where I see a beautiful invitation is that each of us have an opportunity to, instead of choosing to lean out, lean in. Yeah, I guess as we begin to just like give people peace of mind and the benefit of undivided attention that we might find we have more in common than we realize. Mm. And so, yeah, whoever that might be in your life, there's an opportunity there. We can't do that with everyone. Like everyone has limited capacity, but just like to start with one person and never know where that could lead. It's hard though, isn't it? To try mm. and be that stable presence actually takes a mm. lot of energy. You yeah. know, some might call it Zen. <laughs> some might yeah, call yeah, it. Yeah. Um, oh man, have some grace for yourself when you get that wrong as well. Like, yeah, my relationships aren't all rosy either. Hey, like, <laughs> yeah, we we all have hard stuff, but I think trying matters. And I think yeah, when you get it wrong, like have grace for yourself and pick yourself up again, and and just keep trying. I think we find a yeah a kind of better, more meaningful, beautiful, more connected society when we try rather than when we don't. So. Um, yeah, maybe I'll say different in 50 years when I'm more tired, but um, I, I hope not. I'm hoping that I'll still think at that point that the trying matters. Mm -hmm. Jaden, you wrote an article about your experience for the ABC, and since then you've appeared on the project as well. Uh, why do you think the story has struck such a nerve with people? You know, it's so funny, Justine, because... You know, this organization that we work with has existed for over 35 years. So we're not the first people to live amongst people who are marginalized or um, excluded by society. But 
stories are really powerful. And I guess at this particular kind of cultural moment, you know, we've spent all this time in lockdown. There's more tension in the world. Like we're, we're hit by this 24-7 news cycle of, of bad news. And it's important that we stay up to date. But there's also this sense, I think, that people just feel overwhelmed. People are still tired. I, I'm still tired from COVID. Uh, I don't know if you are as well. Oh, yeah. Story, yeah. But, <laughs> I am. Yeah. Just scrape me um, off the floor, I, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But at the end of the day, I think what this weariness is showing us is that there are some basic human needs that we all have. One of them is, is a need to be connected. And I think maybe what people um, recognize in, in our story is that connection isn't always just waiting along for someone to come and love you. <laughs> Every human, no matter what their background, no matter what their skill set, no matter what their experiences, no matter what their community looks like, Every human has the capacity and the opportunity to create beautiful pockets of community exactly where they are. This this kind of longing for connection and community and intimacy that exists in our society, actually we can create it. And in order to to change the world, I you kind know, of use that it like it's a pretty overused phrase, you know, everyone wants to change the world, but there's something really powerful when you just lean into the messy relationships around you and, and seek to be a I think a, a humble and life giving and gentle and generous presence in those so i think um i don't know as, as this story is kind of circulated around everyone just recognizes that um yeah i think willie dally said this from the project segment like it's amazing what happens when you treat people with the respect and dignity they deserve that's Jaden batty sharing about life in his household maybe that form of community isn't quite for you but our world of disconnection and devices could certainly use more of that human touch. I'm Justine Toe. Thanks for joining me for Soul Search. And big thanks to Rowan Salmond and Nadiat El Ghali for producing and Emrys Cronin for sound engineering. Check out the Soul Search website for more info on Andy Crouch's visit to Australia in September 2022 and Jaden Batty's share house experience. Don't forget to tune in next week on ABC RN and via the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.